1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, a black woman gets on a bus. She takes her seat in a section labeled for those who have darker skin, saving the more important seats towards the front of the bus for those who look a little bit more like me with a fairer skin tone. As the ride goes along, making its regular stops that it makes every day, it begins to fill up with passengers. And any white person who gets on the bus, by law, can take a seat, even if the section is marked colored. So sure enough, the bus starts filling up. And the woman sitting in her seat knows what she must do should one more white person get on the bus. And sure enough, it happens. And the bus driver sitting at the front uh, turns around and says to her, give up your seat. Go to the back and stand for the duration of your ride. And there's actually four women in this row. And because white people were not allowed to sit with black people at the time, the entire row had to give up so this one white person could have her seat. So three of the women get up, and they go to the back. They follow the law, but our friend doesn't. She stays in her seat. The bus driver, I'm sure, looked in the mirror and sees what's happening, sees that, that Things aren't happening as they do every single day on this bus. This woman's not giving up her seat, and so I have to imagine he probably commanded her one more time, get out of your seat. But she refused. In later interviews, um, she said that at this very moment, she could feel on her shoulders the weight of the hands of Harriet Tubman on one side and Sojourner Truth on the other. She would say later in interviews, history kept me stuck to my seat. She refused to give up her seat and was forcibly removed by police officers, arrested, and taken to jail. Do you think you know the name of this woman? Who do you think? It's not Rosa Parks. In fact, this incident happened on March 2nd, 1955, an entire nine months before Rosa Park would carry out the very same action when asked to give up her seat to a white person. The first woman to carry out this small act of resistance and revolution was Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old girl who was part of the NAACP Youth Council, who after this incident considered Rosa Parks to be her mentor. For the entire months between the two women not giving up their seat, Claudette would go to Rosa Parks' house, they would sit, they would talk about the civil rights movement, and Claudette Colvin would stay the night at Rosa Parks' house. Claudette rode the bus on the way to school every morning in Montgomery, and on March 2nd, she refused to give up her seat. But unfortunately, history has not remembered her. Did you know her name? Claudette was found to be pregnant just after the incident and therefore kicked out of her high school. 
And unfortunately, the leaders of the civil rights movement in Montgomery feared the backlash from the white media if they followed a young, pregnant teenage mother. Sound like someone you know from the Bible? There was fear of a movement that would follow someone that the world would not have compassion for. And so we forgot her. Claudette's, there's no museums to her. There are no monuments. And history books even have forgotten her moment of resistance. In your Bible, there are four gospels. There's a lot of stories about Jesus in these four gospels, including his pregnant teenage mother that started his revolution. There are some stories that are only found in certain gospels, like in the gospel of John, like Jesus is never born, and Mark, Jesus kind of shows up and is baptized. But there's, there's lots of stories that are in all four gospels that all four gospel writers found important enough to put in there. All four gospels mention Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They go into great detail to describe how the people lay their coats on the floor and they wave palm branches, and what are they saying? Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have their script. They even go as far as to tell us that Jesus is riding on a donkey. All four gospels tell us that the night before Jesus was taken, he sat at a table with 12 of his best friends and I have to imagine a few more disciples as well. It tells us the simple elements that he took, that he broke, that he blessed, that he gave. All four Gospels tell us about Peter and how sitting at that table, Jesus says, one of you is going to deny me. And Peter says, whoa, 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 there's no way I could do that. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus says that Judas is going to betray him. And all four Gospels tell us about this encounter that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. Remember that Pilate is a, is a Roman governor. He's a governor of the state. He normally resided in Caesarea Maritime, which is like 30 miles north of Jerusalem. But the reason that Pilate was brought into Jerusalem was because um, Jesus was crucified during the festival of the Passover. And so this is when people came to Jerusalem um, to participate in this really Jewish holiday together. So Pilate's brought down to Jerusalem to help with this, like, more tense, more people um, moment for the Jewish community. And all four gospels give us so much information about this. They include this, this dialogue, this courtroom drama of this struggle that Pilate has between religious leaders that are trying to murder an innocent man, Pilate's own feelings about his innocence, and a crowd of people that, what were they shouting a whole five days before that? Hosanna are now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But only one gospel tells us about Pilate's wife. Only one gospel writer includes the story of Pilate's wife, and even then the writer doesn't give us her name or anything about her. We only receive one solitary sentence about her. It's verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him and said, have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal 
because of a dream about him. Just one sentence. This book is full of compelling one-liners, right? But just one about Pilate's wife. Just one sentence from a woman which history seems to have forgotten. Just one sentence, one small act of resistance that could have cost this woman her life. There's a chance that she could have been forcibly removed and arrested and thrown in jail. I believe that we have a lot to learn about difficult conversations from Pilate's wife and Claudette Colvin. Even if the examples we have from their life, they don't speak very much. So our sermon series is called The Talk, How Difficult Conversations Make Us Courageous. Now, a little secret about preachers, um, we're not that creative. Um, we just borrow from the right people, right? So the bulk of this material for this sermon series comes from a document in which United Methodist Discipleship Ministries put out called Courageous Conversations. And so last week's example of um, Nathaniel uh, came from that document. Next week's example of Nathan came from that document. But I have to tell you all, Pilate's wife is original material from Creekwood United Methodist Church. We were sitting around the office. Yes, thank you. I'm getting applause from the sound booth. Um, we were sitting around the office, and um, I don't know if it was his idea or mine idea, but David and I collaborate, and we end up with brilliance most of the time, I feel like. Um, and I said, one of us said, why do we never talk about Pilate's wife? And so we decided to go ahead and make this week about her. And in fact, in preparing for um, this sermon series and your talk groups that you've been going through um, this week, we looked at this book called um, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. And it takes three professors who um, are at Harvard and work at the Harvard Business Review. And it's actually a very easy read that goes through tools for better conversations. And so what we learned about last week was the definition of difficult conversations which a difficult conversation is anything you find hard to talk about. So what's a difficult conversation for John may be different as what's a difficult conversation for Carrie Lynn. Now last week we learned about that. We also learned about what's called a learning stance. So a learning stance is when in a difficult conversation, you shift your role in it. Instead of arguing to tell why your point is right and the best point ever, <laughs> You shift and you work to understand and listen and explore the other person's perspective. In fact, difficult conversations are best when both parties shift to a learning stance. When both sides are working to explore the view of another person without making judgments, without making assumptions, and without giving in to stereotypes. So today, we're going to kind of shift into um, what, what the book and what the talk groups kind of move into as a second move. So once we've learned about learning stances, um, the next thing we need to work on with our difficult conversation is our feelings. Now, please don't tune out just because I said the word feelings, because I'm going to prove why you shouldn't, okay? In difficult conversations and intense moments of our lives, I think that we've been taught or perhaps unintentionally conditioned to hide our feelings, We've been taught that when we have a difficult conversation, we need to go to the person and present facts. But instead, 
what if we walked the other person through what we are experiencing, which includes the very feelings that we have? Friends, we've been conditioned that if we cry in front of people, um, that it's weak. It's weak to show a clear display of the feeling of sadness. Or we've been taught that um, revealing and telling about our feelings of anxiety makes us appear hypervigilant or overcautious or like we don't trust anything or anyone. We've been shown, like Miss Allison said in children's time, that in order to rectify our own feelings of our unworthiness, we're supposed to throw stones in a bucket about other people's shortcomings so we can take the focus off of our own inadequacies. But the truth is, is that avoiding feelings does not make them disappear. It only, maybe if you're really good at it, mutes them for a short while, but they don't go away. Feelings matter. They matter a whole lot. And I want to prove it to you. So I want you um, to, to stop for just a second and think about a difficult conversation you've had recently. I want you to close your eyes. Actually, close your eyes. Yeah, it won't be for very long. It's okay. Take a deep breath. Think back to a time in which you were engaged in a conversation about something that you find difficult to talk about. Think about where you were sitting. What did the room smell like? What were you wearing? Now think about what you were feeling as the conversation was going on. Did you feel nervous, insecure, stunned, moved? Were you confident or optimistic, exasperated? Were you irritable? Did you feel powerless? Did the conversation make you feel lonely? Feelings matter. And in fact, I would dare say that feelings are at the very heart of our difficult conversations. We cannot and we should not try to frame our feelings out of difficult conversations. We don't need to bury our feelings. I think that we do this because if we put our feelings away, a difficult conversation just becomes solving problems between people. And we've been taught that that's easier, whereas if we have feelings, if we're on this side, we're dealing with real human people who have feelings. And perhaps bad feelings because of the actions we've had towards them. Feelings because we've hurt them. But Pilate's wife must have felt something to do what she did. Pilate's wife entered willingly into a difficult conversation because of what she felt. Get this, a politician's spouse is the only person in all of the Gospels who is convinced enough of Christ's innocent to go against the grain of society to speak up against the decision to murder Jesus. Not even his disciples could do that. And remember, at this time, a woman's testimony wasn't even credible in court. And some scholars believe that Pilate's wife truly could have been killed 
for questioning her husband's authority in such a tumultuous time. But Pilate's wife felt something about the dream that she had. And we know from scripture that, that dreams tell people of really important, really wonderful news. Even earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph learns about Jesus through a dream. So Pilate's wife felt something and she stood up for what was right because of it. Claudette Colvin must have felt something in order to do what she did. She entered willingly into a difficult conversation because of her feelings. A 15-year-old girl sat on a seat on a bus in a section marked colored and did, did not give up her seat to a white person because she felt that it was wrong. History does not remember this young person's actions because the credibility at the, of the movement was at stake if they followed her. But Claudette Colvin knew it was her constitutional right. She paid the same fare as everyone else to ride the bus and to sit on a seat. She accepted no longer being treated differently because of the color of her skin. She felt something and she stood up for what is right because of it. How many pieces of history might be different if we had followed the leaders that entered into difficult conversations, taking their feelings with them? I can't help but think of in my own life, in my own story, how my difficult conversations might have been better if I had properly taken what I was feeling with me. When feelings are unexpressed in difficult conversations, there's one of four things that can happen. The first is that if you don't deal with your feelings, they can leak into a conversation. There's moments of these um, emotional pieces that come out in a difficult conversation. Anybody ex ever experienced that? Or number two, perhaps the most popular I've seen modeled for me, um, when feelings aren't dealt with, they burst into conversation. You ever shaken up a, a, um, a Coke bottle and then open that lid? What happens? Do your feelings ever do that in a difficult conversation when you don't deal with them? When we have unexpressed feelings in our difficult conversations, the third thing that can possibly happen is that it makes it difficult to listen. Have your feelings ever gotten in the way of your ability to listen to someone else? And then the last, unexpressed feelings in difficult conversation actually take a toll on our self-esteem and take a toll on the relationship with that person. In a difficult conversation, feelings matter. But hear this, for, it's not just your feelings that matter in a difficult conversation, right? If we're in a learning stance, it's also the other person's feelings that matter as well too, right? Now let me take a breath and come in with the pastoral clarification moment that I get to have in every sermon that I give. This is the but, okay? But in a difficult conversation, we are not supposed to vent our feelings. Remember number two with the Coke bottle? That's not taking your feelings with you healthily into a difficult conversation. When we acknowledge our feelings, when we describe them carefully, 
and accurately, we must mindfully embrace our feelings and take them with us. Don't miss that, I'm gonna repeat it. This is from the book, okay? We must mindfully embrace our feelings when we take them with us. One of the most helpful tools I've found over the last couple weeks, thanks to um, the grand old internet, um, is if you Google a feelings wheel, I'm not kidding, this is not soft, I promise, it's cool. Um, there are so many different ways in which feelings are described in different categories that they're put in. It's become a really helpful tool. And if anybody is looking for a birthday present for me, there is a giant pillow of the feelings wheel that I need like three of, like one for my office, one for my bedroom, and one for my living room. The feelings wheel helps me name what I'm feeling. So when I go into a difficult conversation, I can take it with me. I can acknowledge it carefully. I can describe to the person, you know what, I'm feeling, I'm feeling uh, angry. I'm feeling exasperated. I'm feeling lonely. Think about this. Pilate's wife took feelings of powerlessness, anger, agony, and anxiety. And she acknowledged them and used them in her actions to speak up for an innocent Jesus. Pilate's wife is a ray of hope in what is perhaps the darkest hour in the history of our faith. Or what about Claudette Colvin? She took her feelings of frustration, inferiority, and even contempt. She acknowledged them. She used them in her actions. In a world that was comfortable treating persons of color unjustly, unconstitutionally, and without regard for the sacred worth that God gave them. Claudette Colvin is a ray of hope and justice in one of the darkest hours in the history of our country. So friends, today I hope that we might take some inspiration from the women that history seems to have forgotten. You will never see a monument or a museum to Claudette Colvin, and certainly not any dedicated to Pilate's wife. But these two brave, forgotten women teach us how to use our feelings well. They teach us how the Holy Spirit works through what we feel and moves us to action. So may God use our own feelings as we work and use feelings wheels to be better at acknowledging them. May we use what we feel to have courage to go against the grain of what society is telling us. And may we go against the grain of society to stand up and to speak up for what is right, to call out the systems and the actions of wrong that continue to surround us. And in that, even if we are forgotten, may we be a ray of hope and justice in the darkest hours. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Pilate's wife. We thank you for Claudette Colvin. We repent when we have forgotten them. God, help us to acknowledge our feelings. Help us to use them to make the world look a little bit more like your kingdom. Amen.